Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Curzon Film Podcast. I am Irena Muzumechi. And I am Jake Cunningham. And it's time to call me by your name. Ha ha ha. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's lovely to have you here. Uh, We're going to be talking about one of the most well-reviewed films of the year, uh, as well as talking to its director, who uh, I spoke to, and uh, I still can't pronounce his name, even after he's corrected me. So Irena, if you would. Uh, it's Luca Guadagnino. Luca Guadagnino. Excellent. Got it? Brilliant. All right. So, you've been away for a bit, actually. I have. I was in Berlin, uh, not for a long time, just a kind of few days. Um, I went to take a look at our colleagues at York Cinema's brand new cinema, mm. uh, which is near Zoo Station in Berlin. Uh, kind of quite a sort of seedy area, but up and coming and really changing. And they've built this brilliant seven screen new cinema where I got to see Blade Runner 2049. Uh, and it was terrific, had a really good time, and mm. hopefully we managed to bring these guys on at some point and chat to them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when you said you were in Berlin, I thought, oh, I'll bring that off on the podcast, that'd be nice. Um, so like, what, what specifically should I talk about? And it shows that we're very much in sync in that my note was, oh, they've just got a new cinema, haven't they? Yes. There's something to talk about. <laughs> Plus, the European Film Awards will be in Berlin this year, I think. And I remember you guys went yes, to cover yes. last year. Yes, so we year. went to Poland last year for that. And we're hopefully going back to Berlin for Excellent. more coverage this year, uh, which is better than, hope, hopefully be better than the last time I was in Berlin uh, for the 2016 uh, festival. And... Got food poisoning on the plane over. Oh, exciting. Yeah, and spent four <laughs> days in bed and then left without seeing a film. Oh, it's a great festival. Brilliant festival experience. <laughs> yeah, really, really good. Loved it. And uh, actually, uh, you, didn't, you did an Instagram whilst you were there featuring your husband, ex- explaining why you, your love life has been dictated by Indiana Jones, which is something I can definitely <laughs> relate to. Yes. Uh, we went to this archaeology museum and I married a historian, <laughs> I think. Yes, I would attribute every single crush of my life to Indiana Jones. Yeah. 
yeah, I think I'd do the same. All right. Um, so let's uh, let's get on to the film, which has been breathing new life into the peach emoji. Uh, it is Call Me By Your Name. Uh, and Irene, you did the research beforehand. Uh, I lazily have not read the book, but you can tell us about it. I have read the book and I didn't love this book. Uh, weirdly, I think it's one of those examples of uh, a film that's much better than, than the novel. I know the novel has this kind of cult status, really, for, for a certain generation, particularly of gay men I think um, it didn't quite um, it, it, the novel is all told from a very kind of internal perspective uh, from the point of view of this uh, 16, 17 year old uh, and there's a lot of uh, teenage brooding in it and kind of extreme emotions um, and it sort of works it's sort of you know what you see on screen is very faithful to the novel but somehow removing that voice and actually observing this character go through the emotions, particularly as he's very well performed by uh, Timothy Chalamet, um, really made a massive difference to me. Um, there's also like a couple of um, sh- scene changes. Uh, the director and screenwriter, James Ivory here, have decided to relocate some of the action. So it moves from uh, a relatively uh, nondescript uh actually quite deliberately non-identifiable location, which you are meant to understand is somewhere between Liguria, so the Cinque Terre, and Tuscany, uh, because a reference to the place where Percy Shelley drowned. And uh, they, they relocate the bulk of the action from this place to um, Crema, which is where Luca Guadagnino was raised, although not born. Uh, and... Um, then at the end of the film, the characters take a trip and in the book they go to Rome, whereas here they go to Bergamo, which is quite a small town in the north of Italy. And um, it's quite an interesting scene change. I think it does th- things to the kind of representation of Italy, which we can absolutely talk about. Um, and it's very effective. I found it really um, quite a smart way of adapting mm. the novel. Because I do, in the interview, which we'll play, uh, play in a bit after we've discussed the film, um, I do kind of ask about this this eye on Italy, which I think you'll mm. be able to input on in that maybe the book takes more of a tourist gaze about it. Not necessarily, but it, you certainly don't get as much of a sense of place, I don't think. There's quite a lot of references to certain big famous people who have been in certain places. And here, just out of purely placing the, the camera elsewhere and locating it in a different place that has not been as represented in cinema as perhaps the Tuscany that we see in quite a lot of particularly American and British films. Uh, It's got a sense of authenticity about it and much more of an organic um, relationship, I feel, like between the characters and this place that they go on holiday to every year and the kind of connections that they make with the place. So I found this um, really quite brilliant, actually, and the the representation of Italy... um, far away from these tourist locations was really fresh to me yeah i mean this this film will actually by giving you not the representation of italy you're used to seeing on screen will actually make you want to go to italy more than any i don't know palace sorrentino or something <laughs> yes definitely uh there's also something to be said about this collaboration between James Ivory as screenwriter and Luca Guadagnino as filmmaker, which I think is extremely productive. James Ivory has written and directed a number of films set in Italy, which kind of take this um, gaze that probably comes from the source novel. So I'm thinking here of his um, Room with a View uh, 
and uh, Morris even to a certain extent. But um, in in the E.M. Forster novels, there is always a sense of Italy as this incredibly liberated place where people can live their desires and sexuality and be exposed to uh, just a way of living uh, emotions and feelings in a completely different way. Um, this would be quite remote from the experience of Italy that most of us Italians have growing up in a place that actually Guadagnino does a, a, you know, attempts to show as quite restrictive and quite um, tied to a particular kind of history. Um, he does this in very subtle ways that are not always entirely successful. But at the same time, there's something in the collaboration between a screenwriter who is clearly... Uh, placing an eye on Italy as this place of extreme emotion and the filmmaker who absolutely sees the attraction of nature, uh, weather, location and these places with where history is really uh, inbuilt into the, the stones. Um, and and there's, uh, there's an interesting development th- or since the book was written that how the story was going to be told and who was going to be telling it has really had a bit of a journey. Um, and we haven't actually really talked about what the story is no we haven't um so we do have uh, a young chap uh, elio uh, who he's he goes to well in the film it's crema with his his mum and his dad to this lovely old house and his dad studies there i think it's every summer and every christmas they mm-hmm. go there yeah um and he is an archaeologist and they do uh, well digs and dives around the area and there have been a number of PhD students that have come over each time um, to work with his father. And in the summer that we meet the film, uh, we have Oliver, played by Army Hammer, who is the PhD student who's studying with his, with his father. And we develop, or they develop a relationship, Elio and Oliver. And this started out uh, as a book written by Andre Asman, and then it was bought up by James Ivory. And James Ivory wrote the screenplay. And James Ivory was approached to co-direct this, or direct it. And then it was taken to Luca Guadagnino. No. Guadagnino. Nino. And uh, (laughs) then they said, okay, why didn't you... You could co-direct it. And then it's 10 years later. And Ivory, I think, has just kind of reached a point and just sold his script. And so that's why on the screenplay we now see James Ivory and uh, Guadagnino and Walter Fasano as well, because this is no longer completely Ivory's script. Mm. Like I said, I think this cooperation really benefits everybody. It kind of gives James Ivory a much more um, realistic and fresh uh, eye onto Italy. It gives Guadagnino uh, something that I have never seen him do, which is to allow the camera to move freely. It feels like an incredibly free-flowing movie, uh, very much removed from the kind of visual, stylistical... Yeah, I mean, like I Am Love or A Bigger Splash, they're so yeah. ornate, you feel like you don't even want to touch them. They're like you, you feel like there's a velvet rope around them, and this, we can actually walk in and we can actually interact with people. We're actually given an invitation yeah. into the film. Absolutely, and it, just the, the sensual nature of this feels so far away from even the kind of exoticism of Italy that you see in a bigger splash where there's still this element of kind of everyone is dislocated in this place and therefore they experience things that are completely out of the ordinary. Whereas here, these characters feel totally like they belong to the place. Uh, Elio in particular, um, I found that there's this really lovely sense in which the film moves with him. 
you know, everywhere he is, he kind of affects the way the frame moves around him. He moves the music of the film with him. Every time he kind of walks in, there's almost like a theme tune that's playing <laughs> in his head and you can share it with him and you hear him and you watch him move and you see his body kind of in this place and how much he belongs there and how much it belongs to him. Um, so the introduction of Oliver is extraordinary his first entrance where he sort of just kind of arrives steps out of the car he's completely cranky exhausted after the long journey and he looks like a greek god <laughs> i mean there is there is no other way to describe uh, army hammer in this film he is just simply divine um and what he does with his character is also excellent he sort of moves from being this kind of chiseled untouchable object of desire to being a full flesh and blood person who is extremely conflicted um appear seemingly very very confident but in fact actually quite frail perhaps in a kind of emotional way and uh you sort of really chip into that external statue you know the greek statue of his body and you get into his mind and his heart well i think now would be an appropriate time to uh listen to the interview uh with uh luca to learn a bit more about uh elio and oliver and crema so here is me talking to luca guadagnino right so uh let's talk about the film call me by your name where i would like to start is actually the very very beginning before we met any of the characters uh the the opening titles these archaeological artifacts uh there's a lot of removed bodies and faces they almost these faces to me anyway they almost appeared like masks um, as a kind of prelude or precursor for the rest of the film, how do you think uh, those images relate to the, the story that you're about to tell? Well, uh, the, the way we decided to shape the title sequence uh, and something that I've, I have a great enjoyment in doing usually mm. happened to be the way we thought of uh, um, the narrative of the film. And basically what you see is the desk of Mr. Perlman. And because Mr. Perlman is an archaeologist, uh, and one of the things that the archaeologist does is to file uh, the images of the statues or, or whatever findings he has found. And um, so we thought of, like, how is the desk of a professor that is a bit uh, eccentric and that has his own way of filing stuff? And so we put together all the little elements that, 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 that defines his world, his life, the times in which the movie is set, with this Xerox of uh, pictures of the statues. So the assumption was that then what this leads to what, toward what, I don't know. It's, it's up to an audience to understand. Okay. Um, and so where, where was your entry to the film? Uh, did you find the novel? Did you, were you given the script? No, I, 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 I've been approached to be part of this project as a consultant many years ago, almost then, when these uh, producers uh, that are part of the producing team of this movie, Peter Spears and Howard Rosman, wanted to make this movie uh, with a different script, a different director. And uh, simply I... I I grew into becoming more and more involved, and then because before I was a consultant, then I became an executive producer, then I became a producer, and then eventually ended up being a director and producer of this film. Okay, and for you, I mean, between um, I Am Love and A Bigger Splash, we had a relatively large gap, and now it feels like we're in the midst of a very a big creative flurry for you. What what happened? I never that? stopped being creative, no. <laughs> to be honest, because between A Bigger Splash and I Am Love and A Bigger Splash, I had produced... Uh, two feature films, 
by two directors. I had directed uh, one documentary that is called Italian Unconscious, feature documentary, and I co-directed another documentary called Bertolucci and Bertolucci. So I kept myself, and I directed an opera. So I kept myself <laughs> quite busy, even in between. It's just that I didn't made many feature films, but I did a lot of other stuff. Yeah. And so the, the kind of rhythm and the kind of, uh, um, uh, you know, like, pace of creativity let's say that i i i, I always had was the mm. same it's just that i did more in the last few years i did more feature films okay um so looking at call me by your name before you before the cameras started rolling you you understand you spent a month with timothy before filming is that right yeah um, i think more than a month a month and a half um so what was that those was this where the film would be set just building up character for him to relate to the landscape uh, well, we wanted him to be to be knowledgeable of a lot of stuff in the film. First of all, I think because he doesn't play a foreigner, he plays someone from that place. I wanted him to feel soaked into the place, not to find his measurements while shooting, but for him to have a, already understood what was mm. be in crema. And then uh, he went to understanding and learning more how to speak Italian. He went to understand and uh, how to play better the piano, as he does fantastically in the film, the guitar. You know, like he's, we soaked him into the atmosphere and the character. Okay. And um, for you, was your familiarity with the location a, a way to help all the cast and the crew feel a bit more natural, do you think? I don't know. That's <laughs> something I try anyway. Okay. Yeah. Um, so but so you worked with Timothy for this month um with the chemistry between him and Army being so important for the film did you ever worry about the moment that you would introduce them to each other no 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 because i was very confident about the fact that i was uh, completely at ease with both personally so i had no i had no worry no so something i don't know whether um how much like this was part of your plan. Uh, something I noticed ab about Army Hammer's character, Oliver, uh, is that the way that he arrives and leaves scenes is like he's quite quick in his movement. He's it's quite dramatic. The, it's in the book. Okay. He's a, a someone, uh, someone that goes away thing later. Mm. And that was a very nice kind of uh, point from Asiman that uh, it was important to keep. Okay, and um, why do you think he he does that? Was that a way so that you could linger in the middle of the scene for a longer, that you'd only have to keep the most important bit? Well, why someone is uncommittal until it becomes very committal? It's something about that that I think it's interesting to explore. I think someone can be showing uncommittal uh, because cannot sustain the intensity of the commitment he is seeking or she is seeking. So in a way, it's a way of protecting yourself from the energy that comes off of the encounter with the other until you can't resist anymore. Mm. So it's a resistance. And I think this this does brush off on Elio as well. Yeah, like he's sure. I, I agree completely. Mm. Um, so talking of the, the actors there, although I, what I wanted to ask is that you, you would not refer to them as actors, is that right? You would call these performers. Yeah, I don't like the word actor. Why is that? There is something theatrical about actor, actors. 
I'm not very much in love with the idea that actors are a species of people that uh, seek the, sen the, the attention on them. I am not a great uh, interest, I don't have a great interest in actors when they become some sort of uh, um, ego, 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 egocentric machine. I like when people who perform are eager and able to show their absolute inner fragilities and being. And so I like basically people because they're strong, not because they're weak. Okay. I mean, to me, it, it almost sounds in a way that actors makes me think of someone becoming someone else, whereas performing makes me feel like they are playing someone. So you've still got some but essence of But to become someone else, it depends on how do you become someone else. Mm. And in general, it's important to think that whatever you become, whatever mask you put, the greatest af aspect of, uh, of, of the art of acting comes with the um, seemingly interaction between the portrait and the person who makes the portrait. Mm. Okay. And... Um, so one or well, actually there are two moments that pique my curiosity and this is when the the film reel becomes a bit visible and you get a sense of the the film burn of the celluloid um i think it's a moment where elio is reflecting and it becomes a bit faded um it's, it's really beautiful to look at but it's also a, a reminder that we are watching a film with with these accidents in filming Were you pulled off of the movie in that moment no I we wasn't. were more soaked into the movie correct yeah. It's, a, it's you know like what's wrong about the cinematic experience no well i mean that's what, like perform like using this saying performers rather than actors looking like seeing the film reel i think there's a lot of there's awareness there that this is a film but there's nothing wrong with that but for me it's more about saying look how how miraculous is the idea that you can capture on film the ephemeral emotion of this young boy I think it's a reinforcement of the spell that cinema can make on you instead of taking you off and say, oh, look, it's just a movie. It's, it's the opposite. Okay. And were, were these planned moments? Or no. They were just and I'm being so prompt in, in defending the scene and saying, call it beautiful because it's, it has been not been planned, but it was a beautiful accident that happened mm. that we kept in the film. And were... Other than that moment, how often were you? Was was there a lot of moments in the film where you would just keep the camera rolling to capture? No, no. I don't do that. No? I, don't, I don't believe in that. Okay, so was it quite a rigid, rigid set in terms? It's of not a rigid. It's something that has to do with me. That I don't believe in, in I don't believe in randomness. Do you know there is this this thing that sometimes people say that in digital world you can shoot forever for an hour without never stopping the camera and whatever you capture then you use. I just don't buy this. Okay, all right. Um, so I, I want to ask about the the romantically uh, intimate scenes in the film. What I really loved about them is that they're not all completely silent and bottled up, that people are actually having fun and enjoying themselves and laughing. The question laughing. is, how do you make love when you make love? Do you make love in a sort of hieratic and uh, composed and self contain way do you uh no don't think i could be that i think you would be unsexy if you mm. would do that right 
Yeah. I think you are you are a person and you live your moment with the person you have in front of you in a way that is committed to the way you are in that very moment. Mm. And what well, that that's I don't like edited idea of uh, an experience through the lens of the mise-en-scene. I think that's bullshit and it's something completely that turned me off. So when sometimes you see these movies that are really like about the mise-en-scene of something and they project an idea that has nothing to do with what, how things go in reality. There is a great moment in a movie by Martin Scorsese called The Cape Fear, the remake of J. Lee Thompson movie of the 60s. And in this moment, um, Nick Nolte and Jessica Lange, they've been wake up all night, hope, uh, terrified that the guy played by De Niro was going to trespass Travis Bickle. No, not Travis Bickle. Travis Bickle is the other guy. <laughs> anyway, who was trespassing their house. And there is silence and they don't hear anything. They go into the kitchen and they see the maid on the floor. They don't realize that she's surrounded by a pond of blood. And they approach the corpse and then they sleep. And they start to sleep on the floor and they are ridiculous and goofy and they start to be completely covered in blood and it's goofy. It's fantastic. That is a moment in which I realized it. You, in front of death and in front of thriller, yet there is life that mm. is more urgent. And it was a wonderful moment of Scorsese. Mm. Well, that's, that's what I love about the, these scenes in your film now is just how much people actually seem to be enjoying themselves in each other's company in that physicality rather than just staring at each other and heavy breathing all the time awful would have been awful correct yep um so we've, we've mentioned um army and timothy there i just want to bring up michael stuhlberg who's who's excellent throughout the majority of the film as this very caring intelligent, as you say slightly eccentric father then there is this one scene on a sofa near the end of the film where he is completely remarkable, completely floored me. And um, when you were casting for the film, were you thinking with that scene in mind? No. no, I think Mr. Perlman is in all things. As I told you, it, we start with Mr. Perlman desk. So I don't, I don't know. I don't, it's not like going to the marketplace and say, give me a kilo of uh, the best strawberries or which would be the, the, the coach scene, the couch scene. You, you just, think of the person who can be perfect for playing that role throughout the film. Of course, there is the this, this important scene in the script, but that's part of the story, but it's not the, it's not the aim for it. <coughs> Sorry, it's not the aim for the character. Mm. Okay. Luca Guadagnini, thank, thank you. you so much Guadagnino. for joining us. Guadagnino, sorry. Right, uh, we are back and we can talk a bit more about Call Me By Your Name. Um, and where I'd like to start is the opening titles. And if you listen to the interview, uh, that's where I also started there. Um, because I, I love these titles and uh, these these metal, uh, sorry, well, they wouldn't be metal, these bronze. 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 <laughs> Uh, figures, uh, faces, masks. Well, they appeared like masks to me and that played into uh, a lot of the themes of the film about uh, kind of detached bodies and identity. And there's this lovely kind of yellow brush stroke of uh, titles for everyone's name. And uh, this, this kind of really settled me into the mood of the film because it's actually quite a really, despite it's quite a choppy in, it, in the way that it moves around all these faces, it kind of really got you into the rhythm of the film. And the, uh, the, the titles do come up in these quite swishy, quite long, 
uh, brush strokes. It's also the the images of the statues, and now you kind of go from certain details. Um, I think it's a it's a very good metaphor, and it kind of it's really lovely the way as a symbol it kind of crops up various ways through the film. So you see the pictures of the statues at the beginning. You start to combine these bodies, and it's very much the kind of way in which when you fall in love particularly as a teenager I think you kind of focus on certain details of the person Mm. that you like and then you piece them all together and then you go back to the details and this sort of obsessive gaze continues to to come up uh, in the film so that as Elio falls in love with Oliver and Oliver with Elio uh, really you have the same effect you're Mm. kind of watching these bodies happen and then obviously the We've talked about how the father is um, an archaeologist and at some point in the middle of the film they go on this trip where someone has discovered uh, a statue that's been um, dug up, dredged up from uh, Lake Sirmione. And um, there's this lovely scene where the father and Oliver are working on the images of his statue and they do this kind of slideshow. And the father has this this line where he says, look at these bodies, there's not a straight body among them. Look mm. at these lines. Everything is impossibly twisted uh, because of the shape. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today and the forms of these bodies and he says this this beautiful thing these um they are impossibly twisted they daring you to desire them which is obviously exactly what he's Mm. watching uh his son and this this young man do to each other you know kind of watch their bodies and um how this comes up at the end as well is sort of it's a lovely um really thread through the film so it's lovely to see it introduced in the very very beginning and in that moment you kind of you get a feeling that how much of a lovely lecturer he would be as oh well. yeah <laughs> <laughs> definitely yeah. definitely a very accepting and yeah. nurturing yeah and but he's he Stolberg's delivery in that scene and uh, a scene later on he he really thinks about everything that he's saying and you can hear the pauses where he's just trying to pick exactly the right word um, and in that moment where that that daring you to desire them but I can always feel him kind of holding a pen and just, <laughs> just kind of glancing away and just thinking yeah this is it this is the right thing and you, you would love to be his PhD student for a summer absolutely much as I would have loved to be Indiana Jones PhD student <laughs> I would be the student with I love you written on my eyelids Michael Stuhlbach is the new Indiana yes, Jones as he goes X and never marks the spot <laughs> uh, another thing to in, well something that to introduce me to completely fall for Oliver is when he takes over a conversation by saying, 
I'm going to talk etymology for a second. <laughs> and I thought you might like that line as well. I love that line. I love the whole conversation. <laughs> so the dad sets him up for this whole, uh, this is the etymology of the word. Um, what is the word? Oh, I, can't I can't remember what it is. And he goes, oh yeah, it comes from the Arabic, much like all of these other words that start with A-L. And then Oliver chips in with his great pickup line. I'm mm. going to talk etymology for a second. And... Um, kind of shows off and you mm. think whoa hang on a minute and then the jog turns on him as well yeah and they go, the, he does this every yeah. year <laughs> yeah because that in that moment i wasn't sure if i if this is oliver's character that he is this overconfident guy i wasn't yeah. sure if i'd be on his side but then he just gets immediately taken down and you think okay he's not as cool as we think he is yeah he's yeah. completely set up um, but he does look very cool um i think everyone in this film looks very cool and it's surprising for me anyway we get this oversaturated idea of a kind of bright neon garish 80s mm-hmm. and this is not that film and for you personally i believe this is a perfect 80s absolutely it's um having grown up in 1980s italy which sort of dates me a bit um there was a lot in there there was a really recognizable really relatable and again not that kind of revived picture of the 80s but very much an authentic representation there are certain details particularly when um, they go into town uh, on their bicycles and they walk into this little uh, normal bar you know with elderly men playing cards and stuff and every single prop and and kind of um, set dressing that's in that scene I believe you can probably still find in Crema <laughs> these days. But, you know, everything from kind of from the, this big uh, fridge where all the ice creams will be kept. And there's, a, there's the, um, the kind of brand logo for the, for the ice cream brand that every single child in the 80s wanted, you know, kind of El Dorado ice cream. I don't know if you noticed that, but that, to me it was so recognizable. Uh, Elio wears a backpack that I used to have from this brand called Invicta, which every single Italian child had uh, in the 80s. Um, but but also, it's just kind of um, uh, the atmosphere as well is very much detached from the kind of 80s that you would normally see referenced in films, where they'd have like passing shots of televisions telling you what's happening in mm. the world today. There's only a little bit of that when um, particularly the parents and the, um, the governess and the various kind of cleaning ladies and cooks in the house talk about contemporary politics. And they talk about Craxi, who was um, the new prime minister at the time in Italy. Um, and that's sort of placing everything in a context that it's very very specific to an Italian viewer I guess but it just felt incredibly realistic I I remember my parents having conversations about exactly the same kind of issues at the time Um, so it felt really fresh and very authentic there was something that really surprised me um, was that they go into town and Oliver says that he needs to go to the bank and he gets the reply of oh no the bank is closed for summer yeah, of course. What was wrong with that? <laughs> it's July. Everything's closed. <laughs> that just sounds like a dream. It sounds so lovely. I am really amazed that he managed to open a bank account <laughs> so quickly, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, because it's kind of um, that kind of set up this idea of it almost kind of taking place outside of time in a way that it is feeling like, I don't know, something like the Duke of Burgundy where you they get they're mm. so swept up in their own romance that it doesn't almost in a way matter obviously here the setting is very important but it's very much they are the key to it and the idea Mm. that the town is almost closed 
and it's secluding them a bit more. It's yeah. making this their own private place. It's also a great testament to um, the, the really great way in which the film gives you the sense of summer. And um, there's, a, there's a lot of silence in it. There's a lot of kind of um, contemplative times. Uh, and there is a, it, it reminded me of this, this poem, which I can only really quote in Italian because I don't know what the English translation is like. But it, it's, it's, it, it has this line, meriggiare pallido e assorto, meaning spending the afternoon in a pale, you know, sunlit but pale quiet quiet place and it feels like this film absolutely captures that kind of um that kind of feeling and the atmosphere and the way summertime is a time out of out of time out of place you're completely free you don't have to go to school you don't have to study you don't have to do anything even the things that um oliver is is meant to be doing is his research he's kind of you know lounging by the pool reading it's sort of all completely immersed in this uh luxurious time of the mind and time of the body and the heart so it's um it's really fantastic i think how that atmosphere is achieved and how long would that summer holiday be oh in italy it's kind of from mid mid june to end of september pretty much you have to remember that it's it's It's, about 40 degrees you can't really keep kids in a school room it's just kind of because that is something that yeah the, the film kind of doesn't it doesn't build like a an ungodly temperature but that feeling that you have where it is just too hot to do anything, anything. else other than just listen to music or read you can, you've only kind of got it in you to do one thing at a time absolutely and in the way they spend their time is just perfect summer pastimes you play volleyball with your friends you go to the river you go for a swim you go for a bike ride uh and yeah you sweat everywhere you yes. are yes um and so talking about the the carrying on from the theme of the 80s uh i think it'd be a nice time to bring up the music in the film yeah um there's a lot of 80s music but the the music that i really loved in the film is the classical music mm. and the modern classical music as well so a lot of it feels uh you know so elio elio spends a lot of his time uh transcribing music he listens to music classical music on his walkman and then he transcribes it and then he really enjoys playing the piano and playing variations on the piano and kind of shows off a bit and you yeah. know he's playing this theme by Bach and Oliver says oh that's really cool play it again and so Elio plays it but he plays it in a completely different way it almost sounds like a different piece of music and he says but you changed it why did you change it and he goes well I just changed it the way Liszt would have done it if he was playing Bach and he's kind of you know he's playing around and fooling yeah. around showing off how skilled he is but at the same time it's also a way for him to say look at what I can do look at me look yeah at that's me. that's a me. really nice moment in terms of Elio actually getting comfortable with the beginnings of their relationship because up until that point he's really not sure of anything whatsoever mm. and that actually feels like actually no I do want to impress him like, yeah in a, in a nice way and he thinks actually I need to put a foot forward and I need to kind of present myself in a way yeah. and you can tell that Oliver's t- a bit taken aback by it absolutely and he he's taken aback but it's also the moment when he steps forward mm. and says please do this for me can you do it can you do it again why did you change it do it yeah. for me and uh and it's really i think at that point that the both of them recognize something in each other because before that um i think as a sign of the vulnerability they both put up quite a kind of front that says 
I'm too cool to talk to you. You're young. You're too old for me. You're, I, and there's obviously this, this whole awkwardness about not really knowing what it is that's happening to you, which I think is very much what's happening to Elio. He, um, we, we should probably point out that, of course, this is a beautiful love story between boys, but Elio also has a girlfriend. Oliver, you know, probably has girlfriends, boyfriends, whatever is going on. And so there's a great, uh, it, it's not a straightforward oh, I'm gay, kind of coming out story yeah. at all. It's really a story about learning to accept your desires for what they are and understanding yourself better in the process. Yeah, and I think that's, we mentioned a, a film, a moment later in the film with Michael Stuhlbarg kind of addressing those yes. thoughts that I think Elio is still struggling with come the end of the film, that he's, he's almost 95% there, but Stuhlbarg's character just kind of helps him not summarize but make sense mm. of it that scene i think is extraordinary i i've always loved michael stuhlbach i think he's a great great actor um and i would love to see him do more but mm. uh he he's also absolutely extraordinary in these small roles where uh it looks like there isn't very much to do but actually by the end of the film you almost have a sense that everything comes from his point of view and he reveals something that is huge and that you will never have expected and yet once you look back on the film from that moment makes complete sense mm. um and to me, those are the best performances when everything is so layered that you could take away the revelation and still have had something. And once you have the revelation, suddenly you have to change your point of view on, on that character. Uh, so I thought that that scene at the end is absolutely fantastic. And I, I found it just really emotional. And somehow for me, this film has a really happy ending, even though yeah. it isn't, you know, no. in the long run, it's a summer romance. It's going to end. Mm. But... Uh, there is something about that confrontation between father and son and the father saying, you have to live it and don't allow yourself not to feel things because he says to him, our bodies are given to us only once. And that's that's an incredible, incredibly philosophical thing, which, by the way, connects with um, uh, Oliver's, um, Oliver's work. He works on Heraclitus, who is the philosopher. I think he's, he's the one uh, who says you can never step into the same river twice. Okay. because it, everything would be different the second time around so there's 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 this really lovely kind of connection between all of the characters at this point and rivers and rivers actually because there are two significant river moments yes and um, because there is a the first one where they kind of spot just kind of splash and play in and it's quite innocent and they jump in and say oh it's freezing which yeah. i which i would not expect because being stupid i would think that obviously with it's the temperature yeah it's a nice but warm, they're near the alps so yeah. the river's coming down from probably a glacier mm. and then later it so they they and that's kind of at the early stage of their relationship and later on when they actually can go out by themselves mm. to me anyway i'm assuming they kind of follow this river upstream and they track it to its source because earlier when they talk about how cold it is he says that this is coming right from the mountains and so when they what was the town that they go to again uh, they go to Bergamo okay and yet and you can they kind of climb yeah. and this you've seen them in anoraks and yeah, you spent yeah, the yeah. whole film seeing them just without <laughs> their clothes on and you think oh god this, this must be really wet and cold if they're putting anoraks on now um, but I really like that idea of kind of them 
tracing this river to its source after that's where they begin their physical relationship as well that's really lovely and it's completely the invention of the film it's uh there there is kind of an equivalent uh, uh moment in the novel but it, it's very very different they go to a book launch and someone tells them a story about being in thailand and encountering uh, kind of being attracted to this um to this man and discovering it's a woman or something like that right. uh, and it, it happens in Rome near this particular temple where then something else happens so they, that scene has been completely replaced in the film by this lovely kind of going to the source of the river going up into the mountains going somewhere where it's cold mm. and you can kind of uh, yeah just placing these characters in a different context mm. Um, yeah, but we we haven't really talked much about the music, although we started oh, that's where on we, there. This came from, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, I mean, it's just it's a testament to this film that yeah. you can kind of pick any one <laughs> topic and it will take you across the whole film. Um, but th- there's also a few pop songs in mm. the film which are used in a in a fairly brilliant and exciting way. So there's a lot of great awkward dancing. Oh, which, army dancing. Yeah. Have you seen the Twitter oh account? Oh my God, yes. It's, yeah. it's, it's so full of joy. <laughs> I mean, already Luca Guadagnino, I, I have to thank him for giving me my greatest dream, which was Ray Fiennes <laughs> dancing and lip syncing to the Rolling Stones. Um, but army dancing mm. is something else. <laughs> yeah. He's got the moves. I'd be, I'd be proud of those moves. I'd be proud of those moves. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's really good dancing, really good music. Um, and really good use of emojis on the uh, Spotify playlist. It's, <laughs> it's just uh, two men holding hands and then the peach emoji. The peach. It's lovely. Um, uh, we're going to have to talk about this peach. We can, we'll, we'll address the peach <laughs> in the room. Um, but the, the other curious thing about the music is that there's original music by Sir Shan Stevens. Yes. An artist uh, who I really like, who I'm guessing you're a big fan of. Um, and something that really struck me about the music was I went to I'd seen the film already and uh, went to watch something else and the trailer played uh, and I was with my girlfriend at, and she said oh she loved this song which I thought was really interesting because this song is original for the film uh-huh. and this is the first time you would have heard it but I think that's actually a testament to the film for creating music that actually feels timeless instantly and the fact that the modern classical music does not feel overtly modern. And this Sufjan Stevens music, there's three songs in the film, one used right at the end, which I know Timothy Chalamet had actually playing in his ear so that he would know exactly what the tone was. And it manages to bring this modern music and just make it feel completely at home. Yeah, it's either that or every Sufjan Stevens song sounds the same. Ah, no, No. don't say that, no. (laughs) I say this as a fan, so just devil's advocate. You said that about the war on drugs, and that's not true at all. Well, that is a bit true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that, that, that's music. And um, one thing that I would, I'd like to ask you about, again, for this uh, f- um, fantastic Italian insight, is the, <laughs> the political subtext that's running through the film, which I really was not grappling with, um, but you could inform the listeners. Yes, well, there's, a, there's quite a bit... Um, it's not obvious and there's a lot of tiny little details from which you can kind of pick up on a political um, angle. I think Guadagnino is trying to place uh, the romance and its location very much in the context of Italy uh, and trying to say something about Italy today, which is still, sadly, a fairly homophobic place. Um, and uh, there's there's a couple of things that I want to say about the, the 
the way the film treats politics, one of which I don't think particularly works, and it is um, sort of trying to uh, phone in some kind of political subtext. So, for example, there's a scene where Elio and uh, Oliver, who are both Jewish, we, we kind of, this is foregrounded at the beginning, and Oliver wears a Star of David, and later on, uh, Elio also wears a Star of David once he notices that <laughs> Oliver is wearing it. And uh, they kind of, they're cycling around and they get hot and they cycle up to this farmhouse and they ask for a glass of water and this lady goes to get them a glass of water. And just very, very subtly on the wall, you see there's a picture of Mussolini. And uh, Oliver kind of mentions it and says, oh, look, it's Il Duce. And nothing is really made of this. Um Likewise, later on, the, the sort of the cook and a couple of the maids in the house talk about contemporary politics and they talk about, oh, you know, in the good old days, things were different. Um, and this doesn't entirely work for me. I, I think there isn't, not enough is made of it and there's a kind of just simple nod. Um, I, I don't know. I don't think it's, okay, it's entirely If you're going successful. to mention it, you need to mention it. More yes. Properly. Um, the, what there is that's quite interesting is a, a scene with a couple uh, of friends of the parents who come round for dinner. It's a, it's two elderly men and they're they're a couple and they are dressed in this kind of quite eccentric way. They're both wearing these bright color linen suits. Uh, in fact, one of them is Andrea Asiman who wrote the novel. Uh, and uh, the father, uh, Elio's father, uh, makes a comment to him saying, come on, you need, to, you need to wear the shirt they gave you, you need to look, you know. And Elio is kind of making fun of them and saying, oh. And the father says, is this because, you know, are you being like this because they are gay or because they're ridiculous? <laughs> and obviously these two characters are a bit ridiculous. Um, but at the same time, this is, this is quite a clever way of bringing in some uh, sexual politics into the film. Uh, and really just, I, there's something very simple about it, and it's this, that it would be extremely brave of you to dress like that and to walk around with your partner in 1983 Italy, much as it still is today, I think. So that's that's somewhere where trying to bring in a political context really does work. Mm. It's done in a very subtle way, uh, but it's, it's smartly handled, and it, it's kind of in keeping with the themes of the film. So that that to me was a, a really effective way of bringing in those two characters mm. uh, and making something out of them. Although the scene, I, I wish the scene could have been extended a little bit more because that's kind of the only time when Elio meets people who are gay and who are explicitly gay and living happily, presumably. So it, it's sort of, I wanted that curiosity from him. I wanted him to want to investigate what that's like. Uh, but I think the film kind of steers away from it. And this actually made me think about the the controversy about the film, which I think mm. is a complete non-controversy. Uh, so the film has been criticized for not uh, showing explicit sex, uh, whereas the novel is very explicit and actually quite uh, daring. Um, and I think... I don't know. I think it would have been a completely different film if the the level of of um, uh, sexual kind of encounters were to be depicted in the same way as it is in the book. Uh, and I don't think that Call Me by Your Name does not show sex explicitly because of coyness. I think it it decides not to do that out of 
probably a couple of things. One of them is respect for its very young uh, protagonist, uh, but also the respect for the very intimate experience that he's going through, uh, which is not simple sex. It's the kind of loving sex that you discover and that only, you know, the film makes a point of saying it happens to you once. He'll be kind of inexperienced at this point and learning as well. Oh, yeah. And that's maybe that even at your very if you're uber confident no one's going to want that documented anyway yeah exactly so i think it's out of you know respect for privacy and the intimacy of this moment in the book incidentally this is depicted very well uh so there's a lot of kind of stopping and starting and Mm. uh oliver is is very uh careful and constantly asks him are you sure you want to do this and this after the first time they have sex in the book uh Elio has this huge crisis. He says, nothing will ever be the same. Now now I've done this. And mm. what, what has happened to me? And what have I done? Uh, so that I think this is depicted quite well in the film, but moving away from the detailed uh, representation of sex. So uh, to uh, me, it's a non-controversy. Much in the same way as I thought that the actual you know, graphic nature of sex was completely inherent to God's own country and mm. needed to be shown there. Here, I think we really needed not to see it. Yeah. And um, well, my favourite bits of the, the the intimacy that are shown on the film, which I bring up in the interview, is that people are actually having fun, that yeah. they're actually enjoying each other's bodies and they're really friendly with each other, that they're not super intense all the yes. time, that it's, all, it's just play wrestling as well at points. And that's actually really nice to see because it just shows how comfortable and how loving the relationship really is that they can just kind of lose themselves to be silly yeah absolutely and there's also the other element is the great curiosity about each other that they both have about themselves Mm. and about each other which might bring us to the peach yes um we have not got much left but uh we must talk about this peach uh, and stone (laughs) fruits in general because i uh, if there's a film that needs to do a promotional campaign with i don't know a stone fruit manufacturer this is it (laughs) stone fruits everywhere italian peaches italian plums italian apricots yeah everything um yeah there's there's a, a interest it's just occurred to me that's the word the etymology is the word apricot oh, they even think better, even so better. oh god yes um so yes there is a scene which will stick in the mind uh with an invent where elio <laughs> has an inventive use for a peach yes um are we gonna go to there or not we maybe we shouldn't go fully there Elio goes fully there, um, um, but, uh, but maybe it's best left to the imagination. But um, I know there are some critics on Twitter saying, well, who amongst us isn't going to try it after this? Oh, good grief, really? <laughs> Poor Peaches, this is cruelty against Peaches. But uh, jokes aside, uh, I think, you know, it's, um, again, in the book, this is described in quite some detail and stuff. And I think Timothy Chalamet does an incredible job in that scene and how he goes from kind of being this laced, bored teenager who's kind of, you know, waiting around between various episodes of sex, between various people as well, not just kind of, he's, he's very, he's very sexual. He's kind Mm. of discovering his body and his own desires in various different ways. And his performance there is incredible. He goes from just kind of, you see him sort of entertain a thought, mm-hmm. you know, and for a moment, that's kind of just, oh, what am I thinking about this? Ridiculous. And then he just kind of becomes more and more curious. And he, 
the, it's it's a beautiful wordless uh, performance that's happening there and somehow it feels completely natural to that character that he would just try anything mm. um, and what happens next as well I, I just found yeah it's it's again part of this real playfulness and real curiosity between the two lovers you know what sort of Oliver mm. comes in and goes what do you do yeah but it's not like oh my god what did you do right. it's disgusting because yeah. Oh, okay. Well, let me see. Again, it's, it's the celebration of bodies. Celebration of bodies and everything that bodies do yeah. uh, with each other and with themselves. And it's, it really is one of the great uh, onanistic scenes in mm. film, I guess. Yeah. Not that I could catalogue many more <laughs> of them. So let's leave this alone. I yeah, think, uh, we, we must wrap up there uh, on on that peach moment or the peachy moment. Um, peachy blinders. Yeah. <laughs> Um, right, so do go and check out Call Me By Your Name. Uh, it's in cinemas now. Please watch it. It's uh, one of the best films of the year. Uh, I'm sure you've read and heard so much about it already, and it does live up to every bit of hype. Um, also available for you to watch on Cousin Home Cinema, uh, if you haven't had the chance, is uh, I Am Not A Witch. And so that's in cinemas still. But if you, uh, if you, do, if you can't make it to cinema, that is now on Home Cinema. It played at London Film Festival. Um, we had the podcast on it last week with the Q&A as well. So make sure you check that out. And another thing I just want to do a quick shout out uh, to is uh, Boy, which is Taika Waititi's uh, very underseen film. Uh, it was brought into the UK earlier in the year uh, by Misc Films. It was shown a couple of times at the Prince Charles Cinema. Uh, and now it's going into cinemas. It's on Film 4 and it's going to be on Curzon Home Cinema as well. Uh, so that is Taika Waititi, the director of Thor Ragnarok, um, which is in cinemas now as well. Um, <laughs> but you can uh, you can watch that and uh, do check out Boy and Hunt for the Wilder People as well, which I think is on Home Cinema too, if you want some Sam Neill and who doesn't. Both lovely films. Yeah. Um, so until next time, it is uh, goodbye from Jake. Goodbye. And goodbye from Mia Renner. Goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.